Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Let's read the last two verses of 5 and the first verse of chapter 6. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Lord, your word is always good every time. It's the good seed, and we pray that you would make our hearts ready for it, that you would make our minds prepared. We know that what we read here is true, so we ask that by your Spirit we'd be able to understand it so that we can give you glory. You are the wonderful, almighty God, and you deserve every bit of our lives, every bit of our praise. And we need your word to be stirred up and to be anchored. And, and so we, we hold on to it, Lord. We, we pray for your instruction. Amen. I'll give you an application from the start, and that is to plead for reconciliation. Isn't it right there at the end of chapter 5 and at the beginning of chapter 6, we see the word plead in both chapters. The pleading is through the worker. It's really the king's plea, isn't it? But the cry is this, be right with God. That's what it means to be reconciled. Come into right relationship with God that's what the scriptures are saying. And they're not just saying it, they're begging, they're imploring to us with this plea to come into salvation, to be made right with the Most High God. The content of the plea is right there, isn't it? That he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That means the Father gave the Son so that he could pay for our sins. That's how the scriptures are pleading with us, saying, look at what Jesus did. He took our sin upon himself and carried it to the cross so that it could be paid for, so that we could be forgiven. The content of the plea, the reason you should receive, is right there in that verse 20. And I want you to see that it's spoken to those who have already received it, isn't it? This gospel, this grace, this plea is being given to believers, those who have said that they have trust in Jesus. Paul's talking to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, don't receive the grace of God in futility. Receive it in fullness. Believe, but not in emptiness. So this is the gospel spoken to the church, to those who have already received. He's saying, do not receive this in vain. Have you ever been in an environment that's so vile that you, you sense it? The sin is all around you, and you just want to get away. Have you been in that situation where there's corruption, and you're not embracing the corruption? Maybe you've been in a place where you're like, yeah, this is great. I'm going to go for every lie. I'm going to grab onto every sin I can. But have you ever been in a situation where you just want to get out of there because it, you you sense the corruption, the sin, the, the vile nature of what's around you. I hope you have, because that's just a taste of how heavy sin is. I know what 
the heaviness of sin in my own life as a sinner. But then when you start to get a glimpse of the sins of the world and how much weight there is, how much evil there is, how much wickedness there is, Jesus carried all that sin. One man, the God-man, carrying all that sin for us. So when you and I, as sinners, sense the depth of depravity in this world, that's the little sliver of what Jesus paid for at the cross and how he became sin for us. He paid for our sins. That he, the Holy One, perfectly holy, went into that darkness. If you're with me, you know Jesus just carrying your sin is a lot to carry. But the sin of the world, that we might become his righteousness. I don't have my own righteousness. Do you think that you do? Do you think that in yourself, apart from God, everything's good? The Bible tells us the truth that we're not good, that we need the righteousness of God, that the only way we can have that is through Jesus who became sin for us. This is the plea. Be reconciled to God. Receive the wonderful gift of grace. We are fellow workers with Jesus. Did you see that in verse 1? That we're workers together. Yes, we're co-laborers with each other. We often call each other that. We're comrades in Christ. We're co-laborers for the kingdom of God with Jesus. Do you want a job? Most of the time we would say, well, tell me more. What are the conditions of the job? What is the task of the job? How much am I going to get paid? What are the perks? Before you expect me to receive the job, I want to know what it's like. Let me tell you this about the job. You get to work with Jesus. Do you need to know anything else? You get to co-labor with the king of kings. And you're an ambassador. See that at the end of chapter 5. But the message is not of you or first from you. It's from the king. You're bearing his message and you are working with the Lord. We often say we're working for the Lord and we are. But we're working with the Lord. This is his endeavor to save souls, to make disciples. And we are co-laborers with him. Not our own mission, but the mission of the king. So we've seen the content of the plea. I, I hope that we have not grown cold towards the good news, towards the grace of God. When we hear that Jesus paid it all, although we've heard it before, it should never be old to us. It should never be stale to us. Last week, we were fellowshipping in Montana at a church, and I noticed, I paid attention, that when the pastor presented the gospel, most of the church just stopped paying attention. You could tell in their countenance, it's time to put our Bibles away, it's time to start drifting around and thinking about this and that, instead of this is everything to us. Chances are there are those among us today and there were those among us last Sunday and they haven't received the gospel. It should be precious to us. We should never tire of hearing the truth of what Jesus did to pay for our sins. The love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross for us. I come again over and over and I say, Lord, make me thankful when I'm not. Make me in awe the way that I should be. I get to serve the Lord. I get to present this plea. And now look at the urgency 
of the plea in verse 2. So we're learning that we should be pleading for reconciliation, reconciliation between us and God. We should be pleading with, with the lost to be saved. We should be pleading with the saved to not squander their salvation. In an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today is the day. Receive the rescue. Paul here in the scriptures is quoting the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, verse 8, in verbatim, quoting, today is the day, now is the time of salvation. And what was the situation in Isaiah 49? The Israelites had been carried into captivity by the Babylonians. And the context of that verse in Isaiah is now you're being set free. There's an open door. There's a way to leave. There's a way to get out of the bondage. You can be delivered from those who have enslaved you. Israel, you can be free from Babylon. But now Paul makes it into deliverance from the bondage of sin. The opportunity to be free is here and now. Why wouldn't you run through that door? Jesus is the door, isn't he? He's the way. He is the way of escape. He is the way of salvation. If you were in prison, if you were in bondage, if you were in exile, and you were offered a day of release, would you pass it up and say, maybe tomorrow? No, you wouldn't. No, no. You've been in exile, you've been in bondage, you're serving one who doesn't deserve your service, and there's a way to be free. Won't you take it? This is the Lord's pleading. It's the pleading of the scriptures. You and I should be pleading in the same manner. Now, some twist this, and they say it's manipulation. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to believe. Now is the time to receive. Don't procrastinate. Those who are cynical say, oh, that's manipulation. That's, that's pressure. No, it's not. It's mercy. It's God saying, come and receive. It's an urgent call. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous run in, and they are saved. The Almighty God is saying, come in, run into the shelter of redemption. Now, be careful, Christian, that we don't become like the critics and say, well, I want a salvation that's presented in a way where there's no pressure. I like the, the low-key, tone it down. I want a suggestion of salvation. That isn't even consistent with being rescued, is it? Would you suggest to someone that they would be saved from a burning building? Would you suggest to someone who's sinking in the sea, you might want to consider taking this flotation device. Your life is going to be so much better if you do. Is that the way you would present the rescue? No. So those who say that salvation ought to be presented in a way that is not urgent are not doing it or are not understanding the biblical context of salvation or what it means to be saved. What would you say as you were throwing that preserver, if you could even be heard? I was, and it was, you would say, grab on, take it. You wouldn't say, well, take some time to consider. No, you'd say, today is the day. If you don't grab on now, you're going to be lost. Isn't that what the word of God is saying to us? That as we plead for reconciliation, that this is supposed to be urgent. No, grab on. It's not manipulation, it's salvation. There should be an amount of pressure to receive it. Now, it shouldn't be done with a false motive or pressure, but the reality 
We don't know if we're going to have tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. We don't know if we're going to have the next hour. And you hear of how you can be set free from your sin and put on a path to heaven because of Jesus' love for you. That cannot be presented in a way that says, oh, you might just want to consider this and get back to me in a couple days. It's not escrow. It's salvation. Today is the day of salvation. A friend told me recently that an unbelieving co-worker attended church, and, and I asked my friend, so how was it? What was the response when, when he heard the word of God uh, presented? And my friend told me that, that he was bothered because, because the preacher said right to him, today is the day. Do you know what that guy remembered? He remembered the Bible. The word of God did not return void. Out of everything that was said, he remembered today is the day of salvation. And he sensed a pressure. I can't put this off. And he didn't like that, that pressure. Is the problem with the word or is the problem with the person? Is the, is the problem with the sinful heart or is it with the arm of God that's reaching out and saying, come and come now. Don't wait. This is a, a matter of extreme urgency. So I see this pleading for reconciliation, this pleading to be right with God, to, to be saved as it is presented to the church. Church, let's have that urgency for the lost. Let's have that urgency for all who have not received the grace of God. Yes, invite, but, but open up. Speak whatever, whatever you can. And say, today is the day. Don't put it off. Now, some teachers and commentators can't even entertain the possibility that Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to not be the rocky ground that Jesus spoke of in the parable of the sower and the seed. It's just too hard-hitting. It's too truthful for them. So they opt for some sort of ear-tickling interpretation. Jesus made it clear that there are those who receive with gladness but then they fall away because of temptation. Such a person is seemingly all in when they're among the church or, or when they hear the word. But then, this is what it says in Matthew 13, 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while for when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Do you see the gospel presented to those who have professed salvation? He's saying, don't just gladly receive and then not be ready to endure the trial. Luke records the same sermon from Jesus, Luke 8, 13. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Matthew 13, 22 speaks of those who are like the thorny ground, those who had the seed fall among the thorns. It says this, Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world, listen, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. As we read on, we'll see that the Corinthians' affections for other things were getting in the way. 
And Paul knew that. I don't want to ignore this warning for myself. And I cannot justify teaching the word of God without giving the warning. So the plea is receive salvation and don't be toppled by the tribulation or carried away with the cares of this life. Don't be the one who proclaims faith and then walks away. Paul is issuing that warning. It is not my job, is it yours, to judge the souls of men. No, it's my job to issue the warning. Don't receive the word of God in vain. Receive it in fullness. Don't let the end be one of emptiness. Now let's look at verse 3. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. I see a second application here. Sacrifice liberty to not stumble others. Isn't that what verse 3 is saying to us? Not to give offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Powerful statement. It means this, that there are things that I could do. It wouldn't be wrong before God, but I don't do them because I don't want people to lay false blame. I don't want there to be any barrier when it comes to me being able to serve others for Christ. I don't want people to say, that's why God isn't worth living for. Now listen to this. In a world, isn't this the world's attitude? And I'm sorry to say that oftentimes it's the church's attitude. Isn't this the prevailing thought in the unbelieving world today? Who cares what people think? If they've got a problem, I don't care. Deal with it. That idea that I should have no care for how other people perceive me is not of the Lord. It's of the world. Now, why should you and I care about how people perceive us for our own sake, because we want them to like us? No, because we want to be able to serve them. We want them to be open to the message of the gospel, and we don't want to put any hindrance in the way. Now, I realize this is a step up from where a lot of us live on most days. We should be very concerned about breaking the law of God. God gives us his law so that we don't break it. We should be very concerned about what pleases the Lord and does not please the Lord. But how often do we think, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to act that way. I'm not going to say that because I don't want any hindrance. I want an open opportunity, even from the mind of this person who has not yet received or who has received but is weak, because I don't want anything to get in the way between me being able to serve them. Do we have that attitude that's like, hey, I just want to exercise my freedom? No, Paul says, I try not to give offense in anything. Think about how actions look. Think about how comments, comments are taken. By personality, by, by my own nature, I'm a who cares kind of person. I'm, I'm like, hey, if you've got a problem with it, I, I don't care about your problem. But I see here that there will be people who they'll malign the minister to justify their rejection of the message. And Paul says, I, I don't want that to happen. I don't want anything to get in the way. This is the same principle that Paul explained in 1 Corinthians about eating meat sacrificed to idols. The meat was not contaminated, but there were those in the city of Corinth who associated that meat because it was offered to idols in the temple with a lewd and lustful lifestyle. And they said, man, that meat, I'm never eating that meat. Now, the meat was a good price, which 
most people say, I'm going to get the cheapest meat, the best meat that I can. And Paul says, if it stumbles your brother, don't eat that meat in front of him. Don't exercise your liberty. Instead, think about maintaining this open door so that you can serve others. Do we even think that way? We should, because that's what the Bible is saying here. Paul says, I don't want to give offense in in anything. Yes, think in terms of what God says we should do and we shouldn't do, but I don't want my actions to be ammo for somebody to lay blame against the ministry. Last year, I had this like cough that wouldn't go away. It was like the longest incessant cough that I've had that I can ever remember. I I would just like cough almost just like constantly. It was, I'm sure it was very annoying. And, and so some of that like eucalyptus Vicks kind of stuff would, would keep me from coughing. And I learned the hard way that you're not supposed to put it on your face, right? But I would, I had a, like a little um, piece of it and I would just like hold it up to my nose so that it would keep me from coughing because I was just so tired of coughing over and, and over again. And so I'd be driving down the road with this thing right here, this little white tube, like, okay, I'm not coughing. I'm just trying to keep myself in one for weeks and weeks. And my kids told me, you better be careful because it looks like you're vaping. <laughs> and as you're cruising around, you could just picture um, somebody saying, yeah, I saw Pastor Eddie cruising down Highway 20 vaping. And, and, he shouldn't, and, and I started thinking, who cares if they think I'm vaping? I'm coughing. But then as cars would pass, I found myself like taking down my eucalyptus <laughs> and, and being like, because for some reason, you guys are very aware, and I, I don't see cars of people, and I'm just focused on the road. They're like, oh, I saw you going down. I'm like, you saw me? How? Like, I, and you say, why am I taking my vape pin down? Why, why am I taking my eucalyptus potion? What is I don't even want anything to get in the way. It, was it legitimate that it would enter my mind? Like, I don't want it to be taken like that. I want to be, I want the open opportunity to serve. A long, long time ago, I, I met Pastor Gary Grace. I was just a teenager, and, and I'm sure at this point he's home with the Lord now, but he was, he was a man who wasn't in the ministry at first, but he was very successful financially. He, he had quite a lot of money when he came into the ministry, unlike most pastors. And people would say, oh, yeah, Pastor Gary, he's loaded. He, he's rich, you know. And, and he was. He was. He was a wealthy man. He had worked hard. He was a great investor. He was, he was full of charity, but he was... So he came into the ministry with, with quite a bit of money. And there were those undertones of, oh, you know, he's, he's got so much money. And I heard in one of his sermons, and he said, you know... I could buy that. I could drive that. I could live there. I could go there. But you know why I don't? Because people are going to think, you know, you're, you're using the church's money for that. And he said, you know, I just don't, it's not, I made that money a long time ago, right? I, but I don't want there to be any barrier. I want to be able to preach the word in, in openness, there's all kinds of things that should cause us to just take a step back and say, Lord, am I doing anything that's going to cause offense? Now, this application in verse 3, sacrificing liberty to not stumble others, because even though we should consider how things look to others, we should not let that completely control us. And we're going to see that in the coming verses. There are times for us to defend ourselves, to clear the air, to set the record straight. 
And that's what Paul does in the next few verses. He says, I don't want to cause offense because I want an open door to serve and to minister and there to be no hindrance. But he reminds them now of what he's been through. And we'll, we'll read beginning in verse 4. Listen to this list. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distress, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers, yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. I don't think it would be accurate for us to turn ourselves into the Apostle Paul, to say, yes, that's my life. Yes, I've been through all of that, and then some. There are some lessons to learn here, even though most of us, probably none of us, have made these kind of sacrifices with this kind of attitude for the kingdom of God. Paul was a misunderstood minister. He was a falsely accused servant of the Lord. And if you're going to serve God, truly serve God, sacrificially and selflessly, you too will be falsely accused and misunderstood. Now, maybe the extent of your servants or the service or the extent of your sacrifice won't end up being as great as Paul's. But if you endeavored to live for the Lord with a pure heart and give, then you, there will be those that falsely accuse you. Look, Paul was falsely accused, and look at his character. Look at his attitude. Look at what he endured, and there were still those who said, that guy's not real. <laughs> That's hard for me to understand when I look at his life and what he was willing to sacrifice for the sake of the ministry that people would look on in an accusatory manner. But wasn't Jesus falsely accused? Yes, he was. Perfect love. And there are still those that say, ah, I don't know. I don't think he's really that great. You're wrong. He is. So as we look at this, let's not make ourselves unduly into martyrs, but let's realize that with serving comes this territory of having fingers pointed at us. Now, if we're not being honest or if we're being deceptive, some of those accusations are accurate, right? But this is about being falsely accused. We can learn a lot through the life of Paul and Timothy and Titus. We point this out because as we endeavor to serve the Lord, we know that not everyone will be appreciative or, or supportive. And some things they'll say just won't be, be true at all. So now what does Paul do here in the scriptures? He reveals the reality of his life, who he's been, along with Timothy. And, and he says, at this point, I'm going to commend myself to you again. I'm going to remind you of who I've been, not for the sake of being puffed up, but for the sake of being able to continue to minister. Do you see the difference there? 
It's not so that people will think that he's great. It's because he doesn't want to be taken out of their lives and having all that benefit of discipleship being taken away. Look at what Paul endured in his service of Christ. Yet there were those who pointed fingers falsely at him. I look at tribulations. This is intense trouble, specifically for teaching the word of God, for standing up for the truth of the scriptures. He speaks of needs. Their basic needs for food, for water, for shelter, for clothing were not met in their mission to meet other people's spiritual needs. Stripes. These aren't stripes for decoration. They're not stripes for style. They're from rods. They're from beatings. They're cuts from whips. Labors. They were working hard both to provide for their needs and to provide the spiritual nourishment for the churches. Laboring, not at all lazy, sleepless. They were exhausted, deprived of the rest that their physical bodies needed. But now look at the character in the verses we read. Look at the character that they displayed in these circumstances. Grumbling, complaining, pity parties. Is that the kind of character that they displayed? If I was going through beatings, tribulations, labors, sleeplessness, which I don't like, would there be grumbling and complaining? No. Look, there's purity, long-suffering, kindness, and sincere love by the word of truth, by the power of God. And then I noticed this phrase, and many of you did too, as, as you were emailing, calling, and texting about this, studying in advance, the armor of righteousness in the middle of seven on the right hand and on the left. We can't be certain what Paul is referring to here, but maybe it's because we just studied Ephesians chapter six that I'm more inclined to this interpretation. But the armor of righteousness on the right and on the left. Roman soldiers spoke, most of them being right-handed, and there were some left-handed soldiers, but when he said on the right hand, what was that for? the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, right? And then in the left hand of most soldiers was the shield of faith. So I believe Paul is saying that this ministry is one of offense and it's one of defense, isn't it? And you need to listen to the leading of the spirit as to when you're going to be in offense because didn't he wield the word of God very powerfully? He knew how to swing that sword around and how to use it for its purpose, and that's what he's doing in these verses 4 through 10. Like, let me set the record straight here. I'm going to wield the sword by the power of the Spirit and wake you up to the truth. But then at times, he was using the shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and saying, you know, I can't answer every accusation. I, I need to sit tight, trust in the Lord. He's blocking those darts of criticism from the Corinthians. He's also skillfully using the sword to stay on offense. I think of what he is written later on in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, where it talks about the weapons of our warfare, and that they're not worldly, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. So Paul is, I believe, saying to us, there's a time of offense. There's a time to make things very clear, to use the cutting edge of the sword of the Spirit. And then there's times that we should hold up that shield of faith to quench those darts. Look at the honor and dishonor mentioned in verse 8. 
there were those that honored Paul for the ministry that he did. Others dishonored him. They defamed him. The same man getting very different responses. There were some good reports. Isn't that what it says in 6? But there were also some evil reports. He didn't have all positive reviews. Right? There were those that were critical of him, even though he had a lot of character and he was on a mission for the Lord. Look at verse 8 also. He's treated like a liar, yet he's true. He's treated like people don't know him when they do know him. Isn't it a great defense when you hear somebody gossiping, when you hear somebody whispering about another, and somebody says, I know that person. I really doubt that they did that. I know their character. I really doubt that they said that. You see, they knew Paul and Timothy. They were well known, but they were being treated like they didn't know them. He's saying, you know me. You know what I'm like. We've been through a lot together. And now you're making it like, oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Paul is a shyster. Maybe he is a deceiver. Maybe he is a pampered preacher. You know I'm not. Look at verse 9 where it says, dying yet we live, chastened and yet not killed. The ministry took a real hit on Paul financially. He had next to nothing. Educated man, successful man in the eyes of the world. He had next to nothing, but what does the scripture say? Even though I don't have a lot materially, I'm making others rich because I'm giving them. I'm speaking to them of the grace of God. Oh, Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. Like, here he is. Like, my heart's open to you. Yes, I've had to correct you. Yes, I've pointed out where you've fallen short. I've told you to examine yourself. But my heart's wide open to you. I've spoken plainly. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections, which means I'm, I'm open to pour into you, to serve you, to run this race together with you. But do you know what's restricting you? It's not me. It's your own affections. You love other things. You don't want to run the race with me right now. You need to reprioritize. What are your affections? Have the cares of the world, have the deceitfulness of riches taken over. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. I'm open to you, you be open to me. I'm not restricting uh, open relationship here. You're restricted by your own affections. Third application, embrace God's design for discipleship. What am I saying? What is the word saying? We really struggle with God's design for discipleship sometimes, and we need to embrace it. God puts people in our lives to lead us. That's God's design. It's not a person's design. It's God's design. Those mentors, those disciple makers, they're not priests. They're not your bridge to God, but they're a vital part of your sanctification. Search the scriptures. See if it is not so. That God puts loving leaders in our lives to help us as we grow in the Lord. 
It's very important that we have that instruction, that we have that accountability. And we do. We get let down. We get disappointed because we're being led by people that are mere humans. We're being led by sinners. So we get disillusioned and we just say, oh, forget it. But we can't fall into that critical and cynical, I don't need anybody mentality when really God's design for discipleship definitely includes those and make disciples of all people. I'm not saying that it has to be the leaders of this church, but you do need loving biblical leadership. It can't just be a batch of your buddies. I see this a lot, and I'll be like, oh, I've got leadership. No, those are just your little friends, and they don't know up from down. I'm not saying you shouldn't hang out with them at all, but that's not the same thing as a person who is faithful, sound, studied, and loving. That's a necessary part of our growth in the Lord. And I think in terms of the church, when you look back at history and they've created all this hierarchy and people have rejected that and saying like that, all that organization and all that leadership, it's just not of God. Well, there are man-made portions that are certainly not of God. But look at the scriptures. What would the Corinthians miss out on if they were to write off the Apostle Paul? If they were to say, I'm not going to listen to Timothy's teaching anymore. Would that affect their growth in the Lord quite a bit? Then when Titus came to them, they said, you know, you know what? You're a shyster. We're going to look for another. These were true godly men who were endeavoring to do the will of the Lord. Are we embracing God's design for discipleship? I know us. We're individualists. We're renegades. We think, yes, God, but no people. That's not God's design. We can't say yes to the Lord and tell me, you know, just take your people, God, someplace else. I don't need that whole body of Christ thing. I definitely need you. And he's saying, that's why I call it the body of Christ, because I use my people to minister to you. I fill you with the Holy Spirit. I convict you through my word. You have a walk with me. You have a personal relationship with me, but it's not a private relationship. Amen? It's one where we speak into each other's lives, and we get to spur one another on. Embrace that design for discipleship. You will be disappointed at times. But let that cause you to just set your hope on the Lord again. Even if you had a pastor like Paul, you'd be disappointed at times. And you certainly don't have a pastor like Paul. And you'd say, oh man, he, he let me down. He didn't show up. Remember that complaint or in the book when he said he would? But eyes back on Jesus, part of the design is that he uses us in each other's lives to lovingly lead. Paul says, oh, Corinthians, your own affection, you. They were just prone to their own depravity. Now, there's a balance here, too. We should be prudent, but not accusatory. Do you see that in the body of Christ? For some people, they just fall for some so-called leader's hook, line, and sinker, and they have no discernment. They're not prudent at all. And I think to myself, how in the world are you following that person? They're so plastic. And then we have the other extreme where there are those who are so accusatory and so critical that nobody's good enough for them to listen to their instruction or to take their accountability or protection. Look what Paul says here. It's like a child that won't let the parent protect and guide. Have you seen that, parents, in your children at times? You know they need instruction, and you know they even need protection and guidance at times, but it's like, get off me. I don't need your protection. I don't need you watching out for me. Let's not be like those kind of children. And 
it's not meant to be an insult. There was like a parental type relationship, and it's in the word of God. Paul says of Timothy, he's my son in the faith. I'm going to watch out for you. You're my brother. You're my sister in the Lord. And it offends you that I'm looking out for you. Then you need to look at the word of God and see, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? We are. We're supposed to be sticking up for each other, spurring each other on, correcting each other, encouraging each other. That design for discipleship, I'm open to you. Are you open to me? Are you open to others? They're open to you. Let's not be like a child that can't receive the instruction or the protection. As we were hiking a couple weeks ago, we were telling our kids, there are some big animals here, and, and they're dangerous. And sometimes it just doesn't set in. It's like, no, that's just for YouTube. It's not real. We're, we're not going to run into to anything dangerous. And so I'm warning my kids, but well, my kids are big now. You know, they're, they're tall. They're running ahead. They're on, on the trail. They're just moving out. We saw a grizzly bear, what, 50, 60 feet, like right there. And I'm like, that's a grizzly bear. Like, he would eat me for breakfast, right? He's just, wherever he was going. At one point, we looked straight in front of us, and I, and Christian was like, moose, and just right in the path, <laughs> big moose. And you think, just pictures or whatever, I could take him, you know, and then you get up close to him, and he's just right, she was right there on the road, and there was some, it's like, no, I'm, my head is below the back, right? So there's the warning, right? Like, be careful. Yes, enjoy. Yes, walk. Be strong. But there's a reality to this. There's a check to this that all of us need. Let, let, let's be prudent. Let's pay attention. God's design is to use broken vessels, to use people. And how God does this is just amazing. He uses us even with our flaws, even with our sins, not making excuse for them, to help each other in the Lord. Paul, a sinner, saved by grace, speaking such bold words to the people that needed it, to bring them to a place where they needed to be. Be a disciple of Jesus, but be a disciple maker for him too. Look and say, I am being provided with that open leadership. Who am I providing it to? Who, who am I reaching out to and saying, let's walk together in the Lord. Let's be near to him. Let's be careful of the cynicism and the criticism, but let's be discerning. Look at the balance that God's word gives to us. Oh Lord, we need you. We need every part of your design. Help us not to be like those that just make their own way. We see that in this world. They, they think they know what's right, Lord, and they've defied your design, and it's just led them into a lot of destruction, Lord. We see how intricate your design is and, and the design that you've put in our lives, this faith that you've put before us in your word. And, and we want each and every part of it. Lord, if it's from you and point us toward you, we don't want it, Lord. We, we want everything that you impart to us in your word by your spirit. Just now, I pray that you would, would make us open to each other, Lord. That no affection would get in the way of our first affection, which is for you, Jesus.
our Lord, our Savior, and our King. Amen.